there are certain relationships we have in our life that are very, very precious to us. And I had the privilege in my early days in Indiana of working with a pastor named Keith Wooden that is just this dear, dear friend of mine. And uh, about three weeks ago, we got on the phone and we just had a shop talk as pastors. I had really been missing him. And see, we had this unique relationship where we had our offices right next to each other and our desks faced each other. And there was a door between our two offices. And most of the time, as a young pastor, I was 24 at the time, Keith would keep the door open. And as he was working and as I was working, there would be this banter that go, would go in between the two doors. And a couple weeks ago, I was just missing that open door. And so I called up Keith and I said, how are you? And we just had this incredible conversation as two people who have shared a lot of years of life together. And he said, uh, so uh, what are you preaching next? And I said, I have no idea. And he says, well, I'm preaching this. And I said, well, I've been thinking about this. Oh, that'd be really good. You'd be good at that. And we ended up having this conversation. And by the end of the conversation, I knew where we were going to be headed for probably the next six, eight months. Because it was really easy with Genesis. You know, there were 52 chapters. I didn't have to really think about what was next week. But I, I thought that we needed to get back to some of the, the, the basics. And I, I thought that probably one of the most interesting places for us to go would be to Jesus' first recorded sermon. Think about this. We're going to be heading over the next couple months through the spoken revelation of God. You know? It's not going to be the Word, because in John chapter 1, it says that the Word became flesh and dwelled among us. And so we're going to experience that. But I always feel like we need to put things in context. You know, that's really important because as you read God's Word, one of the things that sometimes we're getting wrong is we're not spending enough time figuring out what they were learning and who they were and what is going on in their culture. And we just kind of say, well, what it means to me is da-da-da-da-da. The problem of not anchoring it on what it was originally was saying is that Scripture always has only one real meaning based on all of that instead of everybody's opinion of what something means. And occasionally I will listen to someone and it will become very obvious to me that they have not done much reading below the, the passage to understand why what was happening is taking place. And I think it's really interesting because we're going to watch, even in our community, there's going to be a a discussion over the next couple months in some areas about what does Scripture really mean by this. And I think we always have to go back to the origin and where things started. Okay? And so we have to somehow do something kind of interesting. We have got to place ourselves back in the timeline of Jesus Christ's. Now this is a very fascinating timeline because there is an 18-year gap in Jesus' timeline. I don't know if you realize this. 
If you read, there's a, a version of the, of the four Gospels called a Harmony of the Gospels. And what it does is it, it basically time and date stamps everything because sometimes when you read just one, they all have a different part that they kind of focus on. Um, you're going to find that the last time we hear about Jesus as he's growing up is when he's age 12. And he's in the temple. And in that verse, it tells us that he grew in grace and in knowledge of God, and, 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 and he, that's what we knew. So now, all of a sudden, depending upon which gospel you're reading, all of a sudden you go from that to the next thing they do is kind of an, oh, by the way. And they start talking about this guy named John the Baptist, Okay? And John the Baptist is his cousin. They're about, about six months different in age. And John the Baptist kind of is a unique man because John the Baptist is a prophet in the same ilk as all the Old Testament prophets. Where he is going out there and he's telling them the truth, but he's telling them something really interesting. He's telling them about something that they really wanted. Well, let's just go ahead and read about this story. Because I thought if we're going to do chapters 5 through 7 of Matthew, we probably needed to start in chapter 3. Where Jesus comes onto the scene and his ministry starts. So we're going to be in Matthew and we're going to start in chapter 3 today. And um, we'll read the passage of what was going on with John the Baptist that time. In John chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, it says, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Okay? He came and he was preaching. If, if you were trying to figure out exactly where he was, he would have been in that little squiggly area between the Red Sea and the Dead Sea, okay? That's the area of Judea that he would have been preaching in. And uh, he was teaching there, and we, we find out a little bit more about it as we read on. He said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Because see, he knew something. He knew that his cousin was named Jesus. And that his cousin was the Messiah the promised ruler of Israel. And so his job was to get everybody ready for that person to show up. That's kind of like in our house, Nancy is John the Baptist, okay? And whenever there's an activity going on, Nancy's always preparing the way for that activity, okay? If it's a dinner, she's preparing the way for the meal, if it's somebody coming over to the house, she's getting everything in order. If it's something even happening here at the church, repent because the kingdom of God is coming. And she'll remind me, Jim, we've got the calendar going on. These are the things coming up. Are we ready for these? And, you know, she is the other half of my brain. And the part that's probably brilliant is in her head, not mine. But John the Baptist had this goal... And so we don't know how long he'd been preaching this message, but he basically was telling to people to repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, we've talked about the word repent before. Repent is more than an idea to change your mind. Sometimes scripture just says that that's what they say is the definition of it. And it's more than changing direction. It's to move from whatever is going on in your life back to making God the center of your life. 
It's not two action, it's one action. I'm turning from something to something. And oftentimes God really gives us that kind of choice, doesn't he? In the scripture it talks about it sometimes. It says no man can serve two masters, right? And so it's always telling you you have to turn away from this master and turn towards this master. We are one track people. And so John was coming to the people and he was giving them this message in the wilderness. And this is what he prophesied. From this he, for this is how he was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one carrying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So there are these passages that talk about there's going to be this person that comes before the Messiah that gets things ready for the Messiah. John the Baptist was that preparer. John was out there and he was giving that message and he was telling the people to repent, to get their lives right with God. Now, if you want to see passages that that goes along with, the Isaiah passage that we're quoting right there is in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. Another passage that talks about this is found in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 31, verse 15. Those are just some of these passages that basically, when they watched the way John the Baptist was acting, they knew he was a prophet, and they asked the question, is he the one? Now, all the time, in every society, there, he wasn't the first guy that pretended to be like this. You know, because even in today's society, you can go to some asylums right now and ask people who they are, and there's going to be a couple of them that are going to tell you that they're Einstein, and there might be one or two of them that tell you they're Genghis Khan, and there will be more than one or two that will say, I am Jesus Christ. In fact, there was a guy in South Florida that explained to a congregation of thousands that he was the Messiah. And it was in the newspaper, and we're all going, what in the world's going on? But there were people that so want the message that sometimes they'll get duped. But he wasn't a duper. In fact, he was kind of an interesting guy. And John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Now, I know if you go to the bookstore right now, they're having a sale on insects as snacks. Okay, I think they're called, instead of calling chips, they're called chirpers. Okay, If you want to have a John the Baptist experience, I encourage you to go there. Um, uh, I think that they're seasoned differently than he did back then. But you've got to imagine, John the Baptist is the kind of homeless person that would freak us all out. John the Baptist, when I was explaining this to teenagers... I said the best way to explain the John the Baptist is he's kind of a hairball. You know, he's a little bit, he looks like a little bit of a caveman. And he was out there and he was passionately giving this message. Then Jerusalem and all of Judea and the entire region of the Jordan were going out to him and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan confessing their sins. So there were some people that heard this message and what was going on and they were like, I have got to get my life right. And so they're going out here and as a sign or a symbol of the fact that their lives were changing, they would have a baptism where they would be a reminder of the 
fact that they wanted to turn, live a life of repentance. You know, I think that sometimes we like to live a life of repentance, but there are moments that we live a life of contrition where we just feel bad about this stuff. I, I, I just feel bad. And then we throw up a Hail Mary prayer, Jesus, I feel bad. But we don't sit down with God and say, God, since you've shown me what's wrong, can you show me the way that's right? Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all of your ways, acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. So, um, John was not really popular with some groups of people because John told it like it was. So the religious leaders at that time, he probably didn't always appreciate John because this is how he spoke to them. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. He called a spade a spade. He called them what they were. I'm not sure how I would translate that, but that's a pretty not nice thing to say to anybody. I'd like you to meet my friends. We're all a brood of vipers. you know. But he called them what they were. They didn't like it. Have you ever had a conversation with somebody and you listen to them for a long time and then all of a sudden, so what you're saying is this. And you just twist it a little bit using exactly the same information and you kind of give them like a mirror and they can see who they really are in that mirror. And oftentimes, they're not happy, are they? They they don't want to see that truth. And he was a truth teller. He goes on further and he says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Okay, you want to do the act, you want everybody to see you're part of this, You but... We are concerned about what's going on in your heart. That was what Jesus was always concerned about. And do not presume to say that you yourselves, we, are, we have a father, Abraham is our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children from Abraham. He's saying, hey, hey, this isn't about your pedigree. This isn't about the fact that you're special, because that's how the Pharisees felt. They were special. There was only a group of 70 of them. They were special. They were like the senators, except for they got chosen not by popular vote or by making promises. They were chosen by people that were already Pharisees. They were elite group. And you know what? They were really good people. As I read in the New Testament, as I've read through the Gospels, I think they were really good people. They were doing the right thing. They wanted to look right. They wanted to do right. Most of us would say they are good people. In fact, if we're really honest, there are days that we might even think this. You know, knowing what I know today and knowing how I'm built today, I think I would have probably thought being a Pharisee was a good thing. I might have even wanted to be a Pharisee at times. Because sometimes when I look at people around me, I have Pharisee attitudes. And I notice those things. And yet he was saying, your pedigree is not what makes you right before God. Your heart is what makes you right before God. I'm a child of the 80s. 
In the 80s, an interesting thing happened. A great president came up. His name was Ronald Reagan. And Ronald Reagan made a lot of sense, and he ushered in a new time of conservatism. And along with that time of conservatism came a new dress. We all of a sudden pretended like we were back in the 1950s. Okay? And we wore khaki pants, and we wore little shirts with alligators on them. And we wore, we wore button-downs. And we had little, t- we wore little belts that had whales going back and forth on them and little ties that had special dots on them. And we were something called preps. I was one of those. And I looked really conservative. But I can tell you that although many of us looked like we were conservative from the 50s, our hearts were liberals from the 80s. And we were absolutely caught up in all of the permissiveness of our culture. That's what he's saying to them. Is God is concerned about your heart. Repentance isn't about I'm making a show. Repentance is about a humble change. In fact, when we read the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to find out a lot about what repentance really looks like. He goes on in the passage and he says this to them. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. He's talking about judgment here. He's saying, you bunch of fakers, you're going to be judged. Because God is seeing what's in your heart. And that's the thing that we deal with every single day as people. We have every once in a while where we realize, I am a faker. I deserve to be judged. Everybody thinks I'm this, but I know what's going on inside me. You know? Jesus used to call the Pharisees things like whitewashed sepulchers. On the outside, you're pretty. On the inside, you're dead. He had all the other things that he called them. He saw the habitualness of their sin, and he called them dogs that would return to their own vomit. They would return to the sinful and gross habits of their life over and over again. So that's what John's doing. We read, uh, whoops. And John said this, he says, I baptize with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. I, I am not willing, worthy to even be the simplest footman for this one. And it goes on, he says this of him. He says, He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now this is interesting. Because as you take a look in the New Testament, what happens in the book of Acts? This Holy Spirit comes down and every single believer is promised the sealing of the Holy Spirit and that the Spirit can live in us. In fact, one of the great challenges is this. We are challenged to not quench the Spirit, aren't we? We're not supposed to take the work that the Spirit is doing inside of us and quench it. But we're supposed to be filled with the Holy Spirit. One of the things I think that we've done in our modern society is we've gotten rid of the Holy Spirit. We've given Him a new name. We've given Him this other name, and we call it the conscience. Okay? 
So instead of the Holy Spirit, a part of God telling us what we're doing is right or wrong, we have this thing called our conscience, and it talks to us. And it has two little angels, one over here and one over here. Instead of realizing that every day when, when you are making choices, there's a voice that's speaking into you. And do you know what that voice is? It's God. I hear Christians, everyone's like, I just want God to speak to me. I probably is every day. I'm not sure if you're listening or you're recognizing who it is. But who it really is, is God. Because we as beings would not make those choices on our own because you know that. Because before you were saved, you didn't make good choices. And even if it looked like a good choice, it was done for a very selfish reason, right? Because the center of your universe was you. (laughs) And now that we're saved, we still struggle with that. Every morning when I wake up, I struggle with that. Yesterday, early this morning, God explained to me, he says, there's something standing between you and me. And I said, there is? Yeah, that dumb game you're playing. On your phone. Jim, you hadn't played games for years. All of a sudden, you started playing a game. I've been trying to talk to you, and you're playing that dumb game. It's upsetting your wife, but it's upsetting me more. Throw away the game. That isn't because all of a sudden I got smart. That's because God speaks to us even in the littlest things of our lives. And he wants to baptize with us with the Holy Spirit. And there's a day that he's going to come back, and we're going to all have to go through the fire. And that speaks of his judgment. And he will judge every single one of us. And in Corinthians it talks about this challenging thing about that judgment. It says that some of you will be saved and you'll pass through the fire, but there will be nothing to show for your life because it's all hay and stubble. So your offering to the Lord on the first day of worship to him will be smoke. Wow. But others of us, If we are willing to listen to the Spirit of God, it says there are rewards called crowns that He will give to us. And you know what we'll do with those crowns? We'll be just really excited to give them back to Him as a form of worship. I used to tell one of the men in our church in Indiana, he had a problem with complaining, but he was also an incredible servant to God. And I said to him, I said, you know, Alan, I I think about your crown of service and I, I want you to think about something. Alan, I think God has placed a lot of different jewels in your crown for all the different ways you've served. But I think every time you complain that one of the jewels falls out of that crown. And so my concern for you is you're going to have this really neat crown with all these settings for jewels. But you've complained them all away. Ooh, Pastor Jim, that's... That's a hard thought. He said, I know, Alan, but I think God wants you to work on your critical spirit. So we're working on this project for, this is back when I didn't have my own shop, and I liked Alan's a lot. And uh, we're working on something. He starts complaining. I go, Alan, I can sense the jewel loosening as you speak. Because see, not only does God give us the Holy Spirit to live this life, to indwell us and help us to know these options that we never had before. Before you were saved, you didn't have any spiritual options. But after you could save, now all of a sudden you have these options. 
But we think like it's a menu and we're at McDonald's and we get to choose which ones on the list we get to do. We think that he's giving us suggestions every day instead of commandments. And we're going, uh, no, don't want to do that. Um, no. But not only is he going to baptize us with the Holy Spirit, he's going to baptize us with his judgment someday. I don't think it's going to be an easy day. The judgment day of God. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. We have to remember, okay? We got this world that's, that's raising the banner that Jesus is loving all the time, but he's also fair, and he will judge, and he has a right to judge. And everyone knows that because built into each one of us, we have this barometer that says that's not fair. But unless we have the standard of God to decide what that is, it just becomes another form of selfishness that drives us. We live in a nation that is spending all of its time saying, never again! Not taking into account the fact that the sinfulness of men will cause the sinfulness of men to bump into each other all the time. And so instead of being surprised by sin so we can legislate it and make sure it never happens again, we need to be sad and pray for the change of heart in people because that's the only thing that will truly change our nation. Well, Jesus comes to him out there. Jesus comes to him in the desert. And Jesus comes to him and he says something to him. He tells John that he wants to be baptized. When I read this, I kind of have a problem with this at one level. Let's think about this. Why was everybody else being baptized? To show that they're confessing their sins. Jesus, in the Word of God, tells us that he never sinned. So why in the world is Jesus being baptized? I think actually John is struggling with this because this is what we find John saying. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. Do you come to me? And he goes to Jesus and says, wait, wait, Jesus. I'm glad that you're here. You need to baptize me now. Because even though I'm your prophet, I am a sinful prophet and I need you to help me. But Jesus responds and he says something really fascinating in the next verse. But Jesus answered him and said, let it, now, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all of righteousness. And then he consented. I, I was absolutely blown away by that phrase. I've read it many times. I encourage you to underline that phrase. Fitting for us to fulfill all of righteousness. Hmm. You know, the reason that Jesus Christ was baptized that day isn't because he was living a life of disobedience. Because, see, even the baptism then wasn't about living a life of disobedience. The baptism was saying that I'm changing, remember? 180 degrees. And I want my life to be reflected by obeying God instead of disobeying God. 
The reason that he was doing this is he wanted to identify with those people that were making that hard choice that I want to be obedient to God. What did he say at the end of his life? He was in the garden. And he says, I don't want to do this, right? And then he says, not whose will? Not my will, but yours be done. I want to obey you. And so what he was really saying that moment, Jesus was really saying at his baptism, is he was looking to his father and he was saying this, I want to obey you. I'm really enamored with this phrase. God, when I wake up in the morning, I should say, God, what do I need to do today to fulfill the righteousness, the life of obedience that you called me to? What what, what do I need to do today to live that kind of a life? God, when I interact with people today, what do I need to do to fulfill all of righteousness and be obedient to you in my interactions with people. God, when I think about my finances, and and I'm thinking about the fact that tax season is coming up, what do I need to do to fulfill all righteousness and to give to Caesar what is Caesar's? God, as I parent, God, as as I'm a child, I, I want to know, what do I need to do today to obey what you tell me to do and to fulfill all of righteousness. It's a fascinating phrase, isn't it? Over and over again, you'll find in the book of Matthew, it's a book written to Jewish people to explain to them who the Messiah is. And over and over again, there'll be these Old Testament prophecies over and over again. And it will say this, this was done to fulfill what was said by the prophet Isaiah, by the prophet Micah. Remember? But every one of us every day has this opportunity to fulfill a life that will live the righteousness of God. That's the will of God. The will of God isn't this magical thing out there somewhere. The will of God is every day your willingness to say, I'm going to obey you. And in the words of Ralph that have rung in this church for a long time, I'm going to trust you more. God, today I would like to freelance and do my own thing. But today instead, I'm going to magnify your name and I'm going to fulfill all of righteousness in my life. You see, that's what he was identifying with. He was identifying with the obedience of repentant people. But then the coolest thing happens. Let's read the next verse. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. Okay? Next verse. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, the voice of heaven said... This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. You know, this is an important verse for all of our theology. It absolutely, first of all, though, is an incredible verse between how the Trinity felt about Jesus' obscure life 
to age 30 and him entering into this life of ministry that God was giving him. It was about God saying as he was baptized, this is my son, my beloved son. With him I am well pleased. You see, Jesus was, God was looking into his heart. And a unique thing is happening in this verse, okay? Some people will tell you, well, well, where's the Trinity in the Bible? Where does it exist? It exists in those two verses. Okay? Jesus Christ is there, okay? The Spirit, Holy Spirit, descends on him and fills him in the same way that the Spirit wants to fill each one of us every day. He had that same filling experience. And God the Father spoke and said, this is my son. The whole Trinity is right there in that verse. Okay? This is really important because there's going to be some people that will tell you, well, you know, God's like ice. He has different forms and he shows up at different times in different ways. But see, all the forms are showing up at the same time, right there. Modalism isn't true of God. The three personalities exist. I think of this moment as a son and how special it is to have a dad go, son, I'm proud of you and I love you. I'm pleased with your life. I had lunch with one of my sons this week. And afterwards, my son sent me a text and he said, that was a lot of fun today. We don't agree on everything, but what a great conversation. You know, and I'd been thinking about that conversation too and even though i don't agree with everything and god will sort that stuff out i'm pleased with my son he needs to know that every one of us needs an attaboy once in a while don't you jesus needed an attaboy that day he had been quietly living his life his brothers thought he was crazy the town people thought he was crazy they did the math they knew that he was born out of wedlock you know, Jesus Christ was probably the sharpest guy that ever went through Torah school as a young man, and he was told at age 12, the Son of God didn't get to be a rabbi. He was told, you know, your dad's a carpenter. You'll make a great carpenter. Go back and be a carpenter. Even though when he, at age 12, had gone to the temple, what did the temple people at the temple say? They were amazed with his, not just his sayings, but his teachings at age 12. But he got home, <coughs> and the rabbis remembered who he was. <coughs> and even though he was so smart, they wouldn't let him be a rabbi. Now at age 30, his father breaks through and says out loud, and people say, well, who heard it? I have no idea. Scripture doesn't tell us. I don't know if John the Baptist even heard it. But you know who did hear it? Jesus did. When I was a kid, my, my mom would tell me, your dad's really proud of you. He tells me all the time. Great. Is he ever going to tell me? Do I always have to go through you? I'd like to hear it personally. This is Jim, my son. In him, I am well pleased. And so, this is where we start. 
we're a chapter away from the Sermon on the Mount. Direct revelation from God to His people. But there's some things we have to do first. And so I encourage you to read chapter 4 for next week. But I want you to think, in fact, let's just go back to a prophecy for a second. Let's go back to this prophecy. Jeremiah chapter 31, start at verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with this house of Israel after these days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Uh, Take a look at what it says in Luke. Likewise, after the cup that they had eaten, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And so, even in the smallest things, I think that we have to ask ourselves as we live under this new covenant, are we living a life that will fulfill all righteousness as God has called us to obey Him? You watch the symbol change from the Sermon on the Mount to a loaf and a fish because we're ending the service with communion. And I think that as you examine yourself today, I encourage you to use this phrase and say, God, how am I doing? Am I living a life that's fitting to the righteousness that you called me to live? You know, in Corinthians, it tells us that we're supposed to examine our hearts and make sure that we're ready to take of the cup. And so, if you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, I encourage you to take communion with us today. In fact, we've even gone a step further with communion. There are little cups that are around the bread tray. That's all gluten-free, okay? So even in communion, we're not causing your body to sin against you, Okay? If that's where you're at or how you live, we, we've added that just as a, a, a thing. So if you are a believer, we encourage you to come to the communion table with us. Two things. First of all, we ask that you wait because we like to partake of the, the elements together. And the second thing is we ask for you to wait on each other. The way we know that we're waiting on each other and we're taking this time to examine is that you give me a signal. And the signal is that you look up 
and tell me, okay, I've had my meeting with God and I'm ready now. But we never make the meeting shorter based on what seems comfortable to everyone. So Jonathan's going to play and I'm going to ask for people to come up and share the elements with the rest of the body so we can partake of communion together today.
The first steps to the cross were in the waters of Jordan, where Jesus, like so many other people, 